My name is Susie. I have three children, the youngest of whom struggles with anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. I never thought this could happen to me, and I miss the signs. Being a parent is really hard, but I'm here to help. I'm talking to other parents and experts to help you with the struggles that your kids may face. I want you to know that you are not alone and there is hope. I'm not a physician, therapist, or counselor. I'm just a mom. I want to see you smile again, take away that pain in them clouds that keep covering up the sun. On this episode of Just a Mom, I have Tracy Foster, who is the executive director and co-founder of Screen Sanity, which is formerly known as Start. Tracy, I am more than thrilled that you are here on the podcast with us. Oh thank you. Oh my gosh, Susie, thank you so much for having me. This is truly an honor because a lot of listeners will be familiar with Screen Sanity and they'll be so excited to hear what you have to say in regards to our screens and our kids and their mental health. So I just want to jump into talking about screen sanity and, and just tell me a little bit about how it all came about. Yeah, well, it was 2017 and we, myself and two other moms, were just realizing that there was a new decision on the scene. How do we handle introducing technology to our kids? And to be fair, at this point, some of us had already introduced different things and we're starting to see, hmm, how's this going? But we noticed that we, we kind of had this hunch that it was maybe a little more complicated than it seemed and that there were some things that were affecting our kids. We noticed the things like meltdowns if you tried to take an iPad away. And so one of my co-founders was at the stage where all of the girls, all of the kids, her daughter's age, were getting smartphones. And she just started to think, hmm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about this. Not judging or anything, but just saying, I wonder what this next stage of life is going to be. I wonder what this is going to introduce. And we talk often about how as parents, we usually get information from three sources. Number one, you might read a book. Almost all of us at least owned what to expect when you're expecting, right? <laughs> yep. And why do you own it? It's because you, you want to do a good job. You want to be prepared. And that can help give you a roadmap. And we joke often that there is no what to expect when you're tech-specting. You know, there's nothing about how do you introduce that. There are a few more things now, but especially five years ago, there was just nothing. So that, that was a, a um, dead end. The second thing is you ask your elders. So you go to your auntie or your, your parents or whoever advises you or helped raise you, and you say, hey, how did you handle this? And on this topic, they would say, I am so glad I never had to handle this. And they'd offer sage words of advice and encouragement, but it wasn't the same. So then the third place that we oftentimes go for parenting advice is those parents just a little bit ahead of us, which I think is part of what's so amazing about this podcast, the amount that we can learn from those parents who have walked the road, right? And they almost always have advice. You know, if it, is it about how to juggle youth sports or sleep or early baby things like feeding. I mean, people have such strong opinions about parenting. Maybe they are polar opposites and you ask three people and they all tell you to do different things, but there's no shortage of advice. So on this topic, my co-founder and I thought, well, we'll just go start asking people a little bit ahead of us. And the thing that was so startling is that we didn't get any advice. We would go start these conversations and overwhelmingly people would kind of turn deer in headlights and say, I don't know what to tell you, but do something different. And they would just open up and share these stories of challenges or in sometimes, in some cases, real hardships or trauma that had happened 
through these devices that were never intentional. And the most startling thing is at the end, about 90% of those people would say, and I've never told anyone that this happened. Mm. So we started to discover, number one, you are not alone. Well, just so you know, not to make your story any, any, any easier to bear, but you're not the only person. It's not because you are a bad mom. This is just, we're a social experiment. And the only way that we can help address that shame and help live better for the future is if we come out and we start talking about it. Mm. So that's where our work really began when we felt like, man, there's no roadmap. We don't have a roadmap, but how can we start to piece together some things to help as we're walking through this? And it's interesting because I'm kind of that generation before you um, where we did, we handed these kids these phones and we had no idea what we were doing. And yeah, they, they made mistakes. They did stupid things. Things came on to the phones that we were horrified about because we just didn't know. And it, I always say it reminds me of when my mom was in college and everybody smoked and that was in the, you know, fifties and sixties. And I would say, mom, why did everybody smoke? And she'd say, well, we just didn't know it was bad for us. Yes. And not to make excuses, but I, I, I sort of feel like that was our generation of, of parents when these iPhones first came out, like when my oldest was probably middle school. Yes. And we're like, oh, okay, I guess you need one of those. And of course, they asked for them for Christmas and, and it was the thing that every kid wanted. Yes. And they do so many good things. They do. I mean, one of the things that makes it hard is it's not in a, in a case. It's so much like the smoking example where we didn't know. And yet it's so much more complex because in smoking, it's just simple, like smoking each incremental puff is worse for you. But with technology, it's so much harder for us and for our kids because the same device that we can use to learn French you know, from home is the same device that can then take us down all these other roads. And there's actually research that shows it's really hard for our kids. This like task switching of this same device helps me do these productivity skills. And yet this same device is where all I want to do is go consume and binge YouTube videos. Mm. It's like harder for our brain than in the old, in the olden days, if it'd be like, here's my math textbook. Mm -hmm. I know what I do whenever I have my math textbook in front of me. So it really just, it's a hard thing for all of us to be navigating. It really is. So when you first started having these conversations, were you thinking, oh, we're going to found a nonprofit and we're going to become uh, not just nationwide, but worldwide in five years. No. <laughs> no, not at all. We didn't even want to. I mean, we tried to shop this idea around to everyone and anyone that we could talk to that was a well-established organization doing this work. And I won't name names, but we knocked on every door we could, basically saying, hey, we know that you care about this issue related to technology. Here's a use case. Here's a group. Can Kansas City be your Petri dish? Because we have all these people who are ready. And everyone kept saying, Gosh, that's such a good idea. We don't really think we can touch that. Community engagement, really trying to help change behavior, that's hard. Hmm. But you guys should do it. And it was just over the course of time that it just became clear, okay, we'll take one next step. And I think it just it 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 is a it's a topic that so many people are yearning for. So I joke sometimes that 
I'm so grateful for these unbelievable, you know, reviews and positive feedback that we get. And it's also because there's there's almost nothing else out there. Mm. So people are just desperate for this opportunity. And we hope that we can create resources that that help to take away that shame, that judgment, and bring people together in really practical ways. Let's pivot a little bit and talk about mental health as it relates to these devices, the screens, particularly social media. Yes. Tell me, you've obviously done a lot of research on this. Your organization has. Um, talk to us a little bit about, about mental health. Yeah. I mean, so we call this space digital health because we think so much about physical health and mental health. And as we've spoken with so many mental health um, leaders and thinkers and practitioners, they cannot separate how the digital world is affecting so many people's mental health. It's the number one thing that's influencing how we feel about ourselves. Mm. And yet it's something that many mental health practitioners have never gotten any specific training on. It wasn't covered in grad school, right? Wow. But we're seeing it come out. And one of the things that makes it a little tricky is it comes out in so many different ways. So what technology does is it basically makes easy access to anything. And in a lot of cases... It can be good things, easy access to global news that might be useful, but it also can be easy access to the things that are most, the biggest areas of vulnerabilities for ourselves. So like if we struggle with body image, you can go on to TikTok and TikTok will diagnose you behind the scenes within 30 minutes that they notice that you are gravitating towards content on that and they will start to push you into that angle. Or are you, at, are you at risk or trying to fight against substance abuse? You know that you're vulnerable to that. Or anxiety or depression or whatever. So on social media, the algorithms take you towards more of these things. But also just in general, the amazing information that you have. If you are thinking about self-harm or if you're feeling down, you can start to Google for this information. And I think it's wonderful living in an information age but there's a lot of information that we don't want to have so easily mm. accessible. So one way it just overall affects our mental health is the fact that we can end up getting getting pulled into or sucked into content that is our greatest area of weakness. Another big thing that I'll say is the opportunity cost. I mean, so much, and I know people, your guests have talked about this, the power of that connection. Sometimes just one trusted person who I can go to and say, hey, here's how I'm feeling. And what's really hard, especially among youth. For those of us who are older, we still face it, but we have those muscles and those relationships that we built before everything just went digital. But so many of our youth share that they are, feel like they're more connected than ever before, but more disconnected from real relationships. We've heard so many people say, I know exactly what emoji to put on a post if someone shares that their grandmother passed away, but I have no idea how to actually go sit with that person and say, hey, I'm here for you, you know? So how many of those people can actually show up and help process so many of those deep emotions? And so we walk through that sometimes with just a lot of different situations. We share this story often about what it was like not making the drill team when we were going through that versus now and how when we would go through it, you'd maybe, or, or making not making the basketball team, it can be boy or girl, whoever it is, but you'd get together with a friend, you'd actually talk it out and go through the stages of grief. And now you end up scrolling, and sometimes in that scroll you see things that make you feel worse and worse and worse. So there are so many different ways that it plays out. I know you hear this all the time, but as you're talking, I am just thinking, I'm so glad I didn't have to deal with this when I was a teenager. So 
we oftentimes talk about the fact that we hear so many people say, gosh, it is, it feels like it's harder to be a parent than ever before with all these things, you know, our, we never had this before. And we oftentimes say that's true, but really it's mostly because it's harder to be a kid than ever before. Mm. And so I think that when we start with the empathy perspective of, man, it's hard to feel left out. Man, it would be hard if my every silly 15-year-old girl comment that in the past I wrote on a paper note and handed in, a, in through the classroom or that I said in my bedroom with my best girlfriends while we were just chatting to have that recorded in print and screenshotted. So the more that we can start with that awareness of this is hard for our kids, I think that that helps us be able to engage them in a more vulnerable, authentic, connecting way than just feeling like we're trying to slap boundaries on them. That's an excellent point where, because kids already, teenagers already feel like we're just on them about everything. And so this is one more thing. And to your screen sanity point on your website, the number one cause of friction right now between parents and kids is screen time. Yes. So they feel already like parents are just nagging them, get off your phone, get off your screen. And so that immediately puts up that wall. So if what you're saying is a parent can show empathy and say, boy, I can't even imagine how hard this must be for you, then that helps kind of break down that, oh, I'm not going to listen to my mom. Another thing that I think is interesting about this topic is most things in parenting we have the upper hand just because of our age and stage. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, some of them are silly, but let's say like drinking alcohol. Guess what? Obviously, we shouldn't be consuming excessive amounts of alcohol. There still are ways that it can be misapplied. But we are over 21. Right. So we literally can't underage drink, you know, or things like if you happen to be in a marital relationship, you literally, I mean, again, again these things could be taken out of context, but like talking about sex or, or drinking or these different things, these are parenting things that we kind of just get out of because of age. And so it feels like we're harping on our kids or whatever. But what's fascinating about technology, and I, I want to think of some better examples for that, but the concept that I'm getting at here is... I think one of the cool things with technology is we're struggling with it too. Mm. And so one of the points that we talk about a lot is starting with yourself. And we should be good models and all of those things, but we will all have situations where we can sit down with our kids and say, gosh, I just saw this social media post and I didn't even realize that these two other friends from other parent friends from school, their whole family went on a vacation together. Look at all these pictures. I look at these pictures and I think, wow, I wasn't even invited. Mm. And you can share that vulnerably with your kiddo and have them actually step into it and say, I felt that way before too, mom. Man, it's really hard. And so it's just interesting because this is a topic where we ourselves are struggling, which can also help with our empathy with our kids. Absolutely. I, I, how many times have we done that very thing or seen, you know, oh, my three best friends are out together and. They didn't yes. invite me. Yes. I mean, as adults, we feel that. Totally. So I can't even imagine, again, being a teenager and, and having to deal with that. So what are, give me some of the stats um, in terms of depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation as they relate to particularly social media. Yeah, well, there's so many different things in that. I mean, one of the stats that we talk about a lot is a CDC study that showed that 44% of youth report that they're feeling persistent feelings of sadness or or helplessness, hopelessness. 
Um, and just when you start to dig deeper into that study, it's something that was done during the pandemic, which was obviously um, extreme conditions, but it's something where the data that they collected didn't show a particular spike because of the pandemic. It was just a continuation of an upward trend. And when you look at what the researchers found, it almost all came back to connection. And so when people felt like they had those deep relational connections, those were the kids that fell in the 56%. The kids in that 44, 44% were all kids who really felt like they were not connecting in a deep relational way. Mm. And that's where I think technology ends up putting that jab in. A few other things, statistics related to mental health. One that I'll say, um, I don't have the exact stat handy, and I can go back and research that. But one of the interesting things that um, I, I read about recently is that when you look at social media, which again can provide a lot of good, there are two particular age ranges in kids where it's most challenging. And it's around puberty and going to college. And so when you look at those age ranges, which differs, the puberty is a little younger for girls than for boys. But basically, that's a time where kids are having this surge of emotions, this surge of uncertainty, self-identification, exploration, who am I, do people like me, all of this insecurity. And so when you layer on something like social media, which is inherently about, which inherently stokes a lot about insecurity, sure. it's just too much. Whereas if you wait till kids get a little bit more through puberty and then introduce social media, they can do a lot better with it. So I wish I had the statistics handy. I can look that up if you want no me to. No worries. I'm, I, that's fascinating. And then the going to college. Yes, because that's, again, another time where I know, which it hurts my heart, but mm. it's another time when people are reestablishing who they are. And so there's just a lot of natural exploration or friction or you know, trying to find out where do you fit? Right. I mean, if you think back to the time when you started college, it's a lot of like, who are my people? Where do I fit? And so when you're trying to find that out already in your life, the digital layer can just add a lot of extra complication to that. What about teenagers in particular, or even tweenagers, and the devices and, and sleep? That is a big one. I mean, sleep is one of the top factors of mental wellness. We can relate to that even just anecdotally for any of us when we've gone through periods, be it with a newborn or whatever, where we're not getting sleep or sleeplessness, we're really cranky. Absolutely. It's much harder yes, it is. to do basic daily tasks. So we know that sleep is deeply important to mental health, and this is one of the biggest things where we're having friction. So a study found that this was before COVID, and I think it's only gotten worse, but that 80% of teens are checking their phone when they're supposed to be sleeping, oftentimes waking for almost every notification. And so Ooh. even if they're using their device to do something good, like study more for a test, or I always use the example of like learning a language, even if they're doing that or something neutral, like watching silly cat videos, it's still coming at the expense of sleep. Mm -hmm. And sleep is something we need to fight for. And the other thing is oftentimes when we're alone in the dark, we're not just watching cat videos. It can be so quick to be a space where things start to be the most regrettable things. So if we can get devices out of kids' bedrooms, it's one of the most powerful things that I think we can do as parents to help protect their sleep, protect them from when they're most vulnerable. And part of what's interesting about this, early on we had some um, some 
caseworkers from Johnson County Mental Health Center take our program. We actually did it as a continuing education unit program for their staff. And one of the women on the team works on the crisis hotline. And we had shared the statistic. And she said, gosh, that's really interesting because obviously sleep is so important. So when we talk with youth, we ask them, how are you sleeping? And we are not getting any red flags that in general youth aren't sleeping. Overwhelmingly, they're saying, okay, I'm sleeping fine. But you could tell she was like curious about this. And so she said, I'm going to start asking a different question on the crisis line. I'm going to say our original question, how are you sleeping? And then I'm going to say, where's your phone when you're sleeping? Is it in your room? And are you checking your phone while you're sleeping? And then I'm going to ask, okay, so how are you sleeping? So she tested this experiment. And overwhelmingly, how are you sleeping? Fine. Okay. Good. Things like that. Um, is your phone in your room when you're sleeping? Yeah. Overwhelmingly. I mean, like everyone said yes. Are you checking your phone while you're sleeping? Are you sometimes waking up for every notification? Are you using your device during sleeping hours? Yeah. Okay. So how are you sleeping? And it was just really eye-opening because there's this integration of our digital lives in ways that these youth didn't even realize. It was like they didn't even answer, I'm not sleeping well. Because they didn't even think about it yeah. that way. It didn't even dawn on That's so interesting because the few times when I have left my ringer on or whatever, you know, if something, I knew that there was something going on that I needed to be yes. able to be alerted. Oh my gosh. I didn't sleep at all because, you know, every little thing you're like, oh, what was that? Oh, something wrong. And so I... And teenagers need their sleep for developmental purposes. They're still growing and maybe not in height, but their brains are still developing. Totally. They need that sleep. And I don't know what the recommendations are these days for the number of hours, but yeah. th- if you're checking your phone all night long, you are not getting what you, sh- what you should be getting. Basically, REM sleep is the thing that's being cut, you know? So there are so many reports about how teens are not getting as much sleep. Different states are looking at shifting back high school start time so that kids can get more sleep. My number one recommendation if we want our kids to get more sleep, start by just getting those devices out of the room. And I want to say again, full grace. Why are they in there? Because they made sense to be in there. And we just didn't necessarily realize what some of the side effects would be. So, okay, my kid wants to listen to their Spotify account while they're going to sleep. Okay. Or it has an alarm clock. It does all these functional things. But then we start to see that it does a lot of things we weren't necessarily counting on. I'm thinking about with Will, our youngest, and the other two, you know, they were older when the iPhone came out probably, or when we got them one, late middle school probably 14 or so. And it, what the social media wasn't as pervasive. In the five years between our oldest and our youngest, it's, it's just fascinating how that kind of switched where the social media was just boom, boom, boom. But we did have our kids keep their phones in our rooms until they were like a senior because we thought, okay, they're going to college. They've got to learn how to deal with this because – all of a sudden they're going to have it. So do you ever talk about that or address that? Yeah. I mean, in general, we love to compare technology adoption to learning to drive, Mm. where 
when we learned to drive, it wasn't just all of a sudden, hey, you're 16, Susie, happy birthday. Hey. Here's a brand Don't new car. <laughs> Go out, have fun, be home by whatever time. I, it's pretty easy to drive. Go do it. <laughs> right? No. <laughs> we would learn so much over time. Mm. And I would even say we started learning well before our learner's mm-hmm. permit. I remember my kids, I'll put them in this situation, asking me so many questions, like, how many speeds of the wipers are there? That was such Mm -hmm. a, like, my kids were fascinated with the wipers. Or I then also remember both of my kids went through a situation where they started to learn the relative value of numbers. Uh And they would ask me the question of, gosh, I just, something must be wrong with our car, with this sweet (laughs) naivete. Something must be wrong because this speed limit sign, we just drove by and it said 35, but our car says 42. (laughs) And, you know, there's like this concern. And then you have this opportunity as a parent to model and share and say, oh, yeah. And you can, who knows how you can explain it. Or in some cases, maybe the police officer who pulls Uh you over is actually the reason why you have to explain this to your kids. (laughs) But so there's a lot of modeling that starts from really young ages. And then when there's the learner's permit, I still remember when I first went out driving with my dad and we went to a high school parking lot and different personalities are different. One of my kiddos, he's going to be like, he's going to get that permit and he's going to be like, let's take on the freeway. Why Mm. not? But for me, we went to a high school parking lot and that first, I can actually still physically feel the intensity of remembering this moment. That first day I was so nervous Mm -hmm. and I got behind the wheel and I drove 20 feet forward and I didn't hit anything. And I was like, okay, great. I'm done for the day. Wow. Because there was so much pressure, right? And so anyways, that's it with driving. Driving's incredible. It can take us places we otherwise could never go, but there are risks. That's so much like technology. Mm. But because devices feel so user-friendly from an interface standpoint, we don't realize oftentimes that they still have those same elements of the car, that there are still ways to use them in, in things that are healthier or less healthy, all of those types of things. And so... Just like in driving, how you get increased responsibility as you demonstrate competence and you get to do it under your parents' roof, we believe that same thing should happen with technology. So it starts with stronger limits because it's always, if you can, but you're never too late. You can always incorporate some of these things later if if you feel like you've missed some of those. But you start with stronger limits and then you absolutely, like you said, Susie, you let them up. Because you don't want your kids to go off to college being like, I've literally never slept with a device in my same room and I actually only have a room. Like, right. where am I yeah. going to Nowhere else put to put this? it. So I think it's powerful with all sorts of different things. Like we talk a lot about filtering systems to try to help make it less likely that your kids type whitehouse.com and end mm. up in a you know, rabbit hole that takes them into really unsavory content. And that ideally maybe even everyone in the family has these same filters on the Wi-Fi or on their devices, but that, hey, when your kid's about to go to college, they're not going to have all of that maybe on their devices. So saying, hey, you know, we know you're getting ready to be a junior or senior. We're going to ease off some of these things. And what's been really interesting is we've heard a surprising number of parents, this is on the filter side, but who have shared that their kids say, actually, can you please keep that on? Mm. But that's part of what you're getting at is the kid is then starting to say, oh, I don't know. Do I want that? Or how do I handle it? And so to have that training ground and extra freedom be given over time while they're still in our home, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think that's huge. And it's just like everything when you're training your kids and whatever it is, yes. gradually as they get older and have shown responsibility, they, they get more privileges. 
And that's one thing I always want to remember is that, you know, these, these phones, um, we pay for them. (laughs) They're not cheap, you know, a thousand dollars or whatever, even more for these phones. So, um, I own that and let's remember that, you know, I'm allowing you to use this and have this privilege that it can also go away just like driving. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. I, it's so true. It's a really good analogy that the driving, and I, I know that you all have that, um, as part of your training, um, with screen sanity, talk a little bit about the different types of, of things that you have available for parents and, you know, school communities and the like. Yeah. So we focus on three things, training tools and tips. Training is the deepest heart of our program. Our, our most Our heart's desire is to get parents, so we focus on parents and trusted adults, coaches, teachers, things like that, but to get parents together in a room or a virtual Zoom room or whatever it might be, but to be able to find a sense of community, camaraderie, and shared norms. It's remarkable to us how much people who may have very different political beliefs or very different other things really still want the same things for their kids. And so if you can have the conversation in a non-judgmental way, people really kind of can come together. And what matters in that is this is a topic that is really hard to do alone. Mm -hmm. If you are feeling alone, if you feel like there's no one in your community who's on your same page, still fight the good fight. It is worth it. But the more that you can link arms with other families, it makes such a difference. So our training programs are focused around that. We have a group study book that's like a book club. It's video-guided. With, I'm so grateful to our video team. I can brag on them. It's not us, but this beautiful videos that they've created to help introduce the topic. And then you can convene, hey, second grade girl moms, do you want to come over for wine and cheese? And we'll talk through this. This is hard stuff. I'm trying to figure out how to do it. All of our content is designed with our own use case in mind of not wanting to seem like we're a know-it-all. So how can we invite other people and say, hey, I just heard about this this book, I'm trying to figure this out for my, for my family. Do you want to join me? Overwhelmingly, people are like, I'm struggling too. Mm-hmm. So we have our group study, which happens in homes. We're also launching a parent night kit for schools at scale to be able to say, hey, you, we, we, we get so much demand and interest from schools saying, we want to host a one night thing that brings parents together and talks about this. So we're launching a parent night kit where they can kind of facilitate through it. Um, we also do this for as a webinar, especially for large employers or health insurance companies or things like that to say, hey, as an employee benefit, here's a one-hour webinar. It's live. It's interactive. There's lots of cool stuff that happens with it. But so that's around our training to try to give that foundation. And again, as much as we can, layering on elements of people doing it in community so that you can see you're not alone and build that. Then we also have a lot of tools. So things like, especially for anyone who has a kiddo who's especially getting ready to enter the social media or already in there, we have a social media playbook. That's just helping to ask, in many ways, the super simple questions that each parent shouldn't have to spend all the time researching how to ask. But things like, hey, how do you think about how to, what friends? But we do it in a really beautiful way that's just like a little interactive workbook to say, hey, before you start social media, here are some things to talk about. And again, if you sit and you do the workbook alongside your kid, oh man, it's making you think it can lead to great conversations. We're also launching these plugged-in planners 
to help parents of preschool, there's their preschool, elementary or middle school specific, to just kind of get a quick, it's almost like the social media playbook in terms of asking questions, but saying, hey, here are eight different topics with a little nugget. What are you thinking you might want to do? A great way that you can take a minute to think about it for your own family, share about it with a spouse, different little just downloadable tools, or you can buy them if you want print copies. And then tips is our blog where we just share stories. We have a podcast um, about some of the ways that that we're all in the trenches on this together and can hopefully help lift each other up out here or there. And I want to just hone in on that for a second because the whole reason that the Just a Mom podcast exists is so that parents know that they're not alone and there is hope. And that's exactly what you're working to do with Screen Sanity exactly. is – like you said, link arms together. We're, we were not meant to do this alone. Yes. And to try to you know, fight this battle by ourselves, whatever, if it's a mental health battle, if it's a, an addiction to you know, any kind of social media, whatever. I mean, keeping it to ourselves. And I know because I, I did it myself, I didn't talk about it. And to my own detriment. Yes. And, Shoot, if I had talked about it, I would have been so amazed at, at the support that I would have And received. look at you now, though, Susie. Yeah, here we go. I mean, now you're talking about it so much, and it is. I heard this quote the other day, suffering happens in isolation. Mm. Healing happens in community. Wow. And that's actually one of the really surprising things. This is just a side note, but in our group study program, um, people end up sharing things that are far beyond technology. Because they end up just having these healthy, trusted, essentially, we as a society, I'm going to go like very philosophical here, mm -hmm. but we as a society have had such a breakdown in civil discourse. Right. How many of us feel like we can talk about anything personal or controversial with very many other people, especially if you pick a community like my school? That's a broad mm -hmm. spectrum of people, potentially. And so... One of our co-founders is a therapist, and all of our work is embedded in this design of asking these questions that are really non-judgmental and all of those different things. And it's amazing some of the things that come up based on asking these questions and based on helping people just feel safety mm. talking about things. Safety saying, hey, I think I messed up. Safety saying, I think I want to do this, even though it's different than what you're doing. And being able to have that natural human conversation again that's where healing happens. Right. Even if you land in a different spot, you understand each other better now. Um, so that's one of the things that we really, really love mm. hearing about our program, even though it's just a side benefit. But oh, it's a, that's a huge benefit. It's huge. We heard from a superintendent once. This, this was a couple years ago. We thought that he didn't know who we were when we got on the meeting. It was like, he's like, hey, I want to tell you. I am so grateful for how your program has helped us address vaping. And you're thinking, well, that's not what it was meant to do. <laughs> no, we don't. Uh, we don't I think you're in the wrong thing. We don't talk about vaping. And then he shared, oh, well, actually, no, we've heard feedback that parents who went through your program feel more comfortable talking with their kids about vaping. Mm. And we were like, oh. Wow. Because just like we focus on bringing parent-parent together to be the secret weapon so that parents can then go talk to their kids, so hopefully you're building just these basic muscles of how do I talk with other parents about any topic, and then how do I talk with my kid about any topic? And you can fill in the blank of the topic, really. It can be mental health. It can be whatever. This is just a way of helping you feel that safety, 
helping you feel the confidence and the competence to be like, I'm going to step in the ring. And then once you step in the ring, you oftentimes realize, okay, this wasn't as hard or scary as I thought. I need to just come with the right posture. I need to be humble. I need to be vulnerable. I need to listen. And then, wow, my kids may be willing to share more than I might have thought. Mm. I, I think that is, it's so true. And sometimes I feel like we as parents, we miss out on some amazing opportunities with our kids because we're afraid totally. to bring something up. Totally. One of the biggest things that I think about related to this that I have conversations on basically every day is talking with our kids about porn. Mm. Because we hear so often from parents who say, I don't want to introduce that topic to my kids or that's going to be awkward. You know, they can already start feeling themselves sweating, being like, I don't want to talk about that. But in this day and age where kids are getting exposed to this at the average age of nine, one of the most forward thinking things. Oh, it makes me shiver. Uh, I just did. (laughs) You saw me shiver. It is. I mean, we could have a whole separate mm. conversation about what our kids are seeing and what that does to their brain and their mental wellness because it's not it's not good for these kiddos. But um, there's a great book that we love. It's called Good Pictures, Bad Pictures, and it helps introduce in just a super straightforward, factual way pornography, why it can be bad, why it can be tempting, but why it's what you should do. And it's so amazing because if you sit with a kid before they've ever been exposed to this or before it's they've gone through puberty, it's not it's not awkward at all. Mm. Like you might leave the room with like sweat stains mm. under your arms, but they're just like, okay, great. So now can we go, can we, I'm going to go read Harry Potter mm-hmm. or whatever it is because they don't yet know that it's awkward. And so there are so many situations where we as parents make it harder for ourselves right. because we avoid the conversation or we delay the conversation. And once we just start it or start it early, start it often on a variety of different topics, Mm -hmm. we're actually helping ourselves. Well, and I can remember, and I just had this flashback about 20 years ago of a funny thing that my oldest son asked me and because he didn't know what it was. And, you know, and I I remember prior to having kids, I always said, when my kids ask me questions, I'm going to answer them honestly. I'm not going to, you know, make up, oh, they, you know, the stork (laughs) comes or whatever. And their brains only ingest basically what they're developmentally mature enough to handle, right? Which I mean, is I don't amazing. remember where I heard that. I've but heard the, that too. Exactly. So if, you know, you talk about, you know, pornography on devices and whatever, and then, you know, okay, I'm going to go outside and play. Okay. So <laughs> what little nuggets they got that were not awkward for them at all. That, that's, that is a really good point. And since you brought it up, and I wanted to talk about this anyway, but let's talk about pornography because mm-hmm. that is a huge, huge issue, um, not just with children, but with with adults alike. But let's talk about w- with the kids. Yes. You brought it up. The average age of pornography exposure now is nine years old. Wow. That, uh, and I did visibly shudder yes. <laughs> when you said that. What does that do? to a child's brain. Yes, there are so many factors. And one of the things, I don't mean to be graphic or depressing here, but one of the things to remember is that what our kids are exposed to at age nine is not probably what we were exposed to. So if we think about first pornography exposure 
and you picture a magazine under someone's bed or found in the back of a closet or whatever, that would be quaint. Playboy, hustler, those Ooh. things would be quaint compared to what our kids are seeing. And and the age is nine, which is actually completely correlated. It keeps going down with the average age that kids get a smartphone. Mm. So essentially, they're correlated. But um, what they are seeing is graphic, overwhelmingly violent, mm. oftentimes not representative of anything realistic related to sex. Um, and so that's what they... That's what they can fall into. And there are a lot of different effects. I mean, the broader effects of pornography on people, you know, it's this dopamine infusion that causes there then to be less ability. We see we see actually a surprising number of teen boys who have erectile dysfunction because, oh, oh, yeah, it's this growing trend. I don't know the number offhand, but it's because they are they become addicted to pornography and you need to always have something a little bit more edgy to keep getting the effect and so actually having a physical encounter with a average normal human (laughs) person it doesn't do it for him wow which is crazy but there are so many things that it can affect more deeply and i wish i had a better i i'm i'm eager to leave from here and come up with a pithy thing but there are a lot of ways that it affects them but one of the most heartbreaking things here in kansas city at children's mercy hospital there's one of the leading researchers in the world. Hospitals around children's hospitals around the world have, have been replicating this research. But she let me pause. I know you can relate to this, Susie. When you start to raise a flag in a topic, you get calls and inquiries from people who are like, where did this come from? Mm. Right. So early on, we got connected with a woman who's a sexual assault nurse examiner at Children's Mercy Hospital, like thinking, okay, she must be maybe she's a mom mm-hmm. and she's trying to figure this out in her home. Well, it was something very different than that. She shared with us about how she had been doing this for all these years. And in the past, um, any time a child would be the perpetrator of a sexual assault, it was like a 90-something percent chance that that child had been abused. Mm -hmm. We come, we are born innately able to be verbally abusive and physically abusive, but sexual abuse is only learned. And she said that starting about, I can't remember if it was eight to 10 years ago, as she was filling out these forms about the age of the perpetrator, it was overwhelmingly 11, 12, 13, just in numbers that she had never seen before. And at her hospital, the the biggest bucket of sexual assaulters is children age 11 to 15. Wow. That has never been the case before in history. It is so disturbing. And she's like, what is happening? And in many of these cases, it wasn't anything. There was, it was a parent walked in and they saw these things happening. It was an absolute certainty that this abuse happened. And she started to discover these kids who were abusing, they had not ever been abused, but they had been watching porn. Mm. And porn is overwhelmingly, you know, non-consensual and has violence and all these different things. And it just breaks my heart Mm. because what our kids see rewires their brain into what they think is normal. Mm -hmm. So when you look at in this child sexual assault, or even as we just talk about teen norms and expectations around sex, but these kids, what they saw is what they did, right? And we live here in Kansas City where we have this amazing football team, and I picture all of these kids out there with friends impersonating a Patrick Mahomes pass to Travis Kelsey, and they do it over and over because what they see is what they Mm do. And it just guts me to realize that that's what's happening with this pornography is that what they see 
they then do. And what is so especially heartbreaking is it's just so much harder to then protect our other children from it because it's assaulters who you don't think, oh, I need to keep like, of course, my kids are all going to sleep under the same roof or my cousins if they come over. I want to say one thing of hope. There are lots of ways that we can help this. We can get filters on our devices. We can try to have devices used in public areas. Kids are way less likely to stream porn if they're sitting at the kitchen table than if they're in their room or they're in a bathroom. Try not to have devices in bathrooms or bedrooms, some of those different types of things. But it is heartbreaking, some of these things. And then, as I alluded to, and this, I don't know the direct correlation to mental health, but it has got to be there, where basically teenagers are using porn as sex ed. And Mm. so they are starting to believe that that's what's normal. Just yesterday, I read a statistic that like 30, it was somewhere in the 30s, 30% of girls have had experiences where they go into a sex act before ever even kissing the person. Oh, wow. 30 something percent? 30 something percent. And it's all driven by these norms and expectations that people are seeing, thinking that porn is what things are supposed to be. Mm. And so that leads to, we. I don't know that, I don't have the correlation right here, but we know that that's going to have a heavy effect if you're expecting yourself to do these things that we know are not actually interpersonally gratifying in any way. Oh, mm. this is heavy stuff. It is heavy stuff. But it's, but it's so important. Yeah. And, and I'm listening to this thinking, oh, my gosh, I had no idea, no idea, no idea how mm, damaging this can be. And it's it's not just boys like you just said. That's yeah, right. I think we just tend to think, oh, it's, well, it's just boys. Nope. It is both genders. Mm. And it comes from a variety of places. First is an accident, Mm -hmm. whitehouse.com, or someone says something at the lunch table. And I remember different like body parts that people would say, like the more Latin or official words. And they'd be like, do you know what genitalia is or whatever? And you're like, oh, I don't know. I need to go ask my friend's older sister, you know? (laughs) And so now instead of asking someone, you just type it in Google. Mm. And instead of, you wouldn't, you're not going to like go read the Wikipedia page on it because what pops up at the top, the videos, the photos, and it's just a few clicks away. Wow. And then down you go, or in many cases, actually seeking it out, you know, like it's the new Cosmo magazine. Mm. I remember sometimes reading Cosmo and being like, oh, that just, that article that I read even makes me feel a little bit like gross or whatever. But now you just get all of that information. And again, it goes back to your point, Susie, about how hard it is for kids. Like, this is really hard. If you're expecting yourself to perform, I mean, this is like horribly disgusting. But if if kids, if everyday kids are expecting themselves to like be a porn star, Mm -hmm. that's not healthy. That's not good. That's it's on so many different levels. And the other thing that you said, too, that makes me think about is you can be a great parent, a great loving parent. And have this happen. In the past two weeks, I've had two different people who are very close to me who are super engaged parents say, oh, my goodness, I just found out that my fill-in-the-blank-year-old is addicted to pornography. Mm. I just didn't take the some of the precautions. I just didn't know. You know, and so it is an interesting dimension of we don't want to scare people too much and be like fear mongers. But it is something where when you know better, you can do better. And kids will still end up seeing this stuff at some point in time. But if you make it harder, if it's not something that they're just getting, you know, in their room when you think they're just 
playing Roblox or whatever, it, it makes such a difference. And you make it harder by not allowing them to have their devices alone in their rooms or bathrooms by filters. And I know on your website, you recommend some of those. That's right. We have a products we love page on our website that has some of the filters. Griffin is one of them that just helps to make it so that those accidents or those attempted, you know, pursuits are a lot harder. We also have some devices for anyone who's heard this and thinking about that driver's ed metaphor and, ooh, I want to get out. Sometimes you can feel it. I hope that no one's feeling this like, oh, shoot, I do think I want to get my kid a phone because I want to call them, but now maybe I can't do that and I just have to live in this stress. There are now amazing other products. So you can find that on our website too of these, I call them dumb phones, but I think the proper term is first phone or basic mm -hmm. phone or these amazing watches that it's like, hey, most parents say, I want to get my kid a phone just in case there's an emergency or if I want to leave them at home, we don't have a landline. Well, now these watches make it so that, okay, you want them to call you when you're at the grocery store and say, this is a real life situation. Hey, can you please make sure that you also buy some Doritos? Great. Yes. Okay. Or letting you know if soccer practice ended earlier got canceled. You can get that communication that, the, that you actually are wanting without giving them all the access to the other stuff. Mm -hmm. What would you say to the parent who's thinking... Well, that all sounds really good, but my kid's friends, every single kid has one of these phones, and if he or she doesn't have these things, then they're left out. Yeah. That, first of all, I would say I want to give you a hug and just sit with you and say, it's so hard. Because it's so hard for you, it's so hard for your kids. A few, so that's where I start is just, oh, I wish it weren't that way. But since it's that way, what do we do? Um, one thing that we have heard overwhelmingly from kids is so often we give them the device and it may be the right choice to do it, to say, okay, hey, we're going to do it and we're going to scale it back. Here's how we're going to do it. That's oftentimes my recommendation. But one thing to know is most of the time we give kids access to the phone or to the extra apps because we don't want them to feel left out. Mm -hmm. And we have heard from so many youth saying, I have never felt so left out as once I got it mm. because these these devices and the social media, it just breeds constantly feeling left out like we were talking about earlier before. So knowing, not that it makes it easier, but unfortunately, they're going to feel left out either way. And that might sway you one direction in that. Um, I think my biggest advice would be to, to try to scale in and say, okay, hey, kiddo, what is it that you most want? Are you wanting to be able to text? Are you wanting to be able to do this app? Let's explore a way. Maybe it's we set up an Instagram account on my phone, you know? And yes, I'm supportive of that. But hey, I just want to let you know. I also love doing it with stories. Hey, here's what I heard. Here's the, here's the reason why I'm hesitant about that. Have you ever heard that? And when you say that, overwhelmingly, kids will be like, oh, yeah, well, so-and-so like got bullied or so-and-so did this, and I've seen this happen, and then you can kind of start to press into that. The other thing I would say is there are so many junctures to these decisions. So if you get to a point where you're like, oh, shoot, let's say it's the phone. All of, my, all of the kids in my fifth graders class, they already have phones. So I can't do something like the screen. I know. So I can't do something like the screen sanity study because it it would be too, it, I, I can't even talk to them about anything. They're already mm -hmm. gone to know it's still useful because there are a lot of people who might, 
who might have opportunities to still make some habit changes. So is it, we have a blog post called, this is more for teens, but called Our Daughter's Nightly Struggle that's been read all over the world that talks about getting devices out of the room. Still trying to find some winsome way and hopefully we can give some different tools or stories to talk to those other parents because otherwise those parents are just going to cruise down this, I don't know, rabbit hole, I guess I keep saying, of allowing the devices in the rooms and things like that. So trying to still find some way of connecting like, hey, I'm about to get... Timmy a phone. I'm wondering, guys, what have you found? What's going well? What's not? I've started to read some research. I'm thinking about setting up some things and maybe asking them for some advice. And you might start to hear some stories that give you a that give you an avenue to say, hey, do you guys want to get together and talk about this? I bet there are some things we can do. Um, because most people are struggling with it. And as long as you can come up with a kind way, the biggest thing, you can't sound like you're Hey, I would like to talk about this because we have actually decided to be an internet-free house. Just, you know, or something that's like off the extreme. That's not going to engage people. No. But if you just say, hey, trying to figure this out. So I would encourage you to try to talk to some of those other parents too. That's very good. Would you talk about your website? Where can people find Screen Sanity and all of this amazing information and resources? Yes, our website, we just launched a beautiful new website that hopefully is super easy for you guys to explore, but it's at screensanity.org. And then we also do have social media at Screen Sanity on Facebook and Instagram because technology really can still be good and useful. So hopefully in your social feed, it'll give you good tips and tricks and not make you feel bad about yourself or any of the other things that can be the downers. Excellent. Tracy, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you feel like is important um, to mention, to talk about before we close out? I'll share this and you can do with it what you will. But one of the biggest ways that I do think is an easy avenue for talking with our kids is, is the news, using the news and stories to say, whoa, what do you think about this? And I'm not sure if you heard, but there was a 14-year-old girl, her name was, Mo- her name was Molly Russell in England, who died by suicide at age 14. And they are actually, I don't know who it is exactly, if it's the parents or just the government, but they're actually litigating some of the social media companies, in particular Pinterest and Instagram. And because what they found is this girl, like I would have done, she, for instance, went on Pinterest and made a board about depression. And who knows, maybe initially her board about depression was actually helpful things for her, like quotes so that when she felt depressed, here's what she could go look at. But over time, because of how the algorithms work, um, she would get things like emails that would say, here are 10 top pins you might want to consider for your board on depression. And there was no one checking whether these were healthy pins or not. And I'm not trying to throw Pinterest under the bus. But anyway, so it would start to propose it, it was sending her it was suggesting content related to self-harm mm. and so I only share that as an example of that story her name's Molly Russell you can find her online but if you have a kiddo who's struggling with some of the mental health various areas and you want to talk about social media that might be a great entry point whoa I just heard about this girl this feels really hard. I've seen some things on my feed. Have you ever had any of those things on your feed? What do you do? How do you handle that? How can I help you? Is there a way I can help you? So unfortunately, you know, 
all the time there are more stories like that but that one just really stuck out in my mind because of what they did where they actually had someone from Pinterest they had someone from Instagram as well but sit and they showed hey we just want to show you we're literally going to scroll through the emails that you sent her with the pins we're going to scroll through the suggested content the 150 or so previous things that they had populated in her feed and the guy said we've got to fix this Mm. you know so hopefully now they are going to fix it Mm -hmm. but it was just a really powerful way of not pointing my finger at my child but saying this is hard how can I help you social media has things that show kids how to self-harm how to die by suicide that's right and that it's just stunning to me and so We've got to have these conversations. Yes. And I I hope that things like that case in England will cause Pinterest was more remorseful than Instagram was, but will cause the tech companies to try to use their powerful algorithms for good. But we can't wait. That content is out there. And so what can we do, even if it feels like David up against Goliath, but what can we do as parents to say, we're not going to wait for Congress or the tech companies to save us? Hopefully they will. But in the meantime, we've got to be there fighting for our kids. Again, not fighting against our kids, hopefully, but fighting for our kids. Absolutely. Well, Tracy Foster of Screen Sanity, thank you so much for for being with me and for sharing your incredible insight. Even though it's hard, it's real and it's what we need to know as parents today and moving forward. Thank you so much, Susie, for all that you do on this podcast. It's amazing. Thanks, Tracy. Thank you for listening to Just a Mom. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts or ideation, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. Once you smile again, take away that pain and them clouds that keep covering up the sun. I want to see you smile again, take away that pain in them clouds that keep covering up the sun. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please share this with your friends and anyone you think may find these interviews helpful. Thanks again for listening to Just a Mom.